We are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1. It's great to see everybody. This is our Christmas teaching time now that we're doing. And, and um, what I've decided to do and what I've felt led to do is really talk about the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. My daughter was just teaching me this week about the Christmas. I didn't even know this. My daughter knows theological things I did not know, which is getting crazy. But she's like, Dad, the Christmas tree is like a symbol for the Trinity because you got the Father at the top, you got the Son, and you got the Holy Spirit. And I was like, awesome. Uh, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has been revealed to us as three distinct persons but one God. We are monotheists. Uh, and some would say that as Christians, we're monotheists who don't know how to do math. Uh, three persons, one God doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's how God has been revealed to us. And it's important for us to remember that with the Trinity, when God is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not saying that God sometimes puts on the Father role and plays that role, and sometimes he puts on the Son role and he plays that role, and sometimes he puts on the Holy Spirit hat and he plays that role. No, no, no. Each person is distinct Co-equal, co-eternal, but distinct persons, but so united in love and in community that the three persons are one God. Now, the best way to approach studying the Trinity is to look at the roles of each person of the Trinity. What is the role of the Father? What is the role of the Son? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in my life. And when you begin to look at the function of the triune God, you begin to at least approach it and understand it at some level. Last week we talked about the Father. The Father adopts people who didn't originally belong to his family or even deserve to belong to his family. He adopts sinners in grace and in love and puts them into his family. He trains and disciplines his children. He provides. That's what the Father does for us. He is our Heavenly Father, Abba Father. When you pray, Jesus said, pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Certainly, the advent and the coming of Jesus into the world puts on display the work of the Father and the beautiful power and sovereignty of the Father. Both Matthew and Luke, the Father is emphasized as He's bringing forth and sending His Son to purchase our adoption. So it's enough for you to know that the Father sends the Son. But today we're looking at the Son. And what is the role of the Son? What is the role of Jesus as the Son of God? We know that Jesus is eternally the Son of God. He's always existed in eternity past. And Christmas is about not Him losing some part of His divine being, but adding to His divine being human nature. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to bring us to the Father. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus comes and to know Jesus is to be saved, to have eternal life. Whoever believes into Jesus is a Christian, is a person who belongs now to God and his family. 
And so we come to Matthew chapter 1, and having looked at the Father and his role in the genealogy, we now come to the birth of Jesus Christ, and we study the Son of God and his roles and functions in our life. Let me read the passage in Matthew 1, verses 18 and following. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, when we read this story, we automatically, I always feel sorry for Joseph. Don't you feel sorry for Joseph? I mean, here's this guy, he's living in a, in a little bodunk town, probably doesn't have a lot of money, and he's probably, you know, barely making it with his carpentry business, and here he is, he gets engaged to this, to this girl, she's probably no more than 14, 15 years old, and of course, as a dad of daughters, I can't even imagine uh, my girls getting engaged at such an age, but so it was, and Joseph is engaged to this girl, and and, and then suddenly, she reveals to him that, that, that she's pregnant. And we don't know what he thinks. He doesn't talk a lot. In fact, he's never quoted in all the Bible. Not one word is spoken by Joseph in any of the Christmas stories. But we can imagine that he was uh, confused and baffled by this pregnancy of Mary. And when he says... Well, how could you be pregnant? And she says, well, God did it. You know, he was like, sure, God did it. Right. He determines quietly because he's a good man. This is a righteous man. He's certainly not perfect. He needs a savior just like anybody else. But as it comes to men, he's a good man. And he decides quietly he is going to divorce this girl that he's been engaged to. And, of course, it's in a dream that an angel reveals to him what had happened how she conceived, but most importantly, what the purpose of this son would be. In verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22 and 23, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And from confusion, Joseph is led by this dream and this reality of the function of Jesus the Son into confession. By verse 25, He is the one that when the child is born, he names him Jesus. The name Jesus means Lord save, or the Lord is salvation. It's from Yeshua. Sometimes it was used as a verb. Yeshua. Which you'd be praying, you know, like, Lord save. A lot of times uh, women would be in so much pain when they were having babies. They'd be like, Yeshua, 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 when they were in labor. So the daddy outside the tent would be like, well, we'll call him Yeshua. 
I thought it was funny, too, for you two people. <laughs> you and I are going to leave after church and go eat lunch together. Many boys in Jesus' time were named Yeshua. It's a very common name. And so the question is, what was the function of Jesus that's revealed to Joseph that led him from confusion to confession? Classically, we can derive and extract from this text what the roles and the functions of Jesus the Son are. And in all of church history, almost an amazing amount of unity has existed in the role of Jesus in at least conservative-minded churches. No matter what denomination you come from, if there's any kind of depth of belief, Jesus' role and function in our life has has been communicated that he came to do three things or be three things in our life. The first of these three things is that Jesus the Son is the prophet. Jesus the Son is the prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament did two things. He revealed God to people and he spoke God's words to people. When the Isaiah passage is quoted, he is Emmanuel, God with us. That's a prophetic role that Jesus came into the world to do. Incidentally, Moses, who was known as the first really great prophet, Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and following, prophesied that a prophet would come to save people. He said in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and following, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, and on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God to see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for, for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. Later in the Gospel of John, after Jesus had provided the, 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 the miraculous bread for the people, they said, this is the prophet. This is the promised prophet who was to come. Jesus is the prophet. And he does two things. The first thing is, just like an Old Testament prophet, but at an infinitely more perfect level, Jesus reveals God to you and I. He is God in the flesh. Another great passage to keep in your bag of passages on Christology. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and following tells us that Jesus is God. Revealing who God is to human beings. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and following long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Another passage, I don't have a slide for this one, but let me quote it to you really quick. In the great prologue of the Gospel of John, say, what'd you do at church today? Man, I got some good Christology. Christology is the study of Christ, and that's what we're doing. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, what God is, Jesus is. And you can't separate the two. And he came into the world to manifest the glory and the radiance of exactly who God is. When you're thinking through your God categories and you're, you're trying to decide who is God, the person you're to go to is you're to go to Jesus to determine who God is, to shape your God categories in your life. You see, all human beings are made in the image of God, and therefore we all go after God and we create God categories, paradigms by which we try to understand who God is. It begins when we're really little. Because we have this desire, is there a God? If there is a God, who is God? And, and, and if, if I know who he is, is it possible that I might know him in a relationship? Is it possible I might be reconciled to God or make atonement for God? See, every human being is shaping some kind of God category. Some people make a decision that they're not going to believe in God. Their God category is that there is no God altogether. But it's very interesting because they get fired up about their God category of no God. Because whatever category you come up for God, you're going to get pumped up about. You're going to be pretty, you know, fired up. And so atheists get fired up about they're not being a God. They're actually quite excited about it. In fact, they want you to believe the same thing. Oh, you believe in God? You shouldn't believe in God. I don't believe there's, there's no God. Why don't you join me in not believing in God anymore? That's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Why would you care what anybody believes if you don't believe there's a God? But atheists do. I was watching the O'Reilly Factor the other night, which I know shocks many of you. You're scandalized by this. And I saw this guy, and they were doing, of course, on the O'Reilly Factor, they're always doing like, it's the end of Christmas, they're killing Christmas, they're taking Christ out of Christmas. I mean, they spend hours on this. But they had this guy, this atheist, who was a part of this atheistic organization. I don't know. And they spent money, and they put up a huge sign in Times Square. And this sign in Times Square said, Who needs Christ in Christmas? Question mark. And then underneath it, it said, Nobody. The period. And this guy comes on to be interviewed about this. And like, dude. What are you doing? And he's saying, well, listen, to enjoy Christmas, you don't need Christ. He says, in fact, many so-called Christians in our country enjoy Christmas without Christ. Which, by the way, he's got a point about that, doesn't he? I hate it when they're right. Ooh. But my question, which I was dying for the guest host on the O'Reilly Factor to ask him was, why would you spend millions of dollars? for? How much money does it cost to put a big old sign up in, in Times Square? How much money do they? They actually raised money for this. You know they did. They were like, hey, man, we got to put up a sign that says that Jesus is not important. we got to put up a sign that says that God is not important, that you can have life without God. I mean, they raised money and put this sign up like a missionary would, would, would 
publicize that Jesus is the Son of God. They publicize that there is no God. And here's the point. You and I were created to have God categories and to be fired up about it. And whether we're knowing God or not, we can't get away from this part of our nature that is worshiping, that is loving, that is zealous, that wants to be zealous. God gave us that. And an atheist can't get away from worshiping. An atheist can't get away from religious zeal. An atheist can't get away from this passion to believe in something. And you know what Jesus does? He says, listen. When you start desiring to know who God is, don't go to your grandparents, don't go to your denomination, don't go to your pastor, don't go to whatever the world says, don't go to culture, don't go anywhere. You know what? Come to me. I'll tell you and show you who God is. I will define for you. Not what, not what your, your, your great-grandfather said about God. You come to me and I will show you who God is. That's my role in your life, is to reveal, to be the revelation of God In your life. Jesus is the prophet who reveals God to us. And he's also the prophet who speaks the words of God to us. And I want you to know, here's what's interesting about Jesus being the prophet. He was a prophet even before he was born. He was the prophet in the Old Testament. He didn't need his incarnation to become the prophet Listen to this verse from 1 Peter chapter 1, and I only got verse 11 up there. I'm going to read to you uh, verses 10 and 11, but listen carefully. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, listen to this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now that's an amazing passage because what that's saying is, what Peter is saying is that the Old Testament prophets, when they spoke and said, thus says the Lord, it was Christ in them who was speaking. It was Christ in them who was bringing forth the word of God. And so when you read the Old Testament prophets, you're not reading the words of Isaiah. You're reading the words of Jesus. When you read Jeremiah, you're not reading the words of Jeremiah. You're reading the words of Jesus. When you read Malachi, or some call Malachi, an Italian prophet. That was bad. Now that was not funny. You're reading not Malachi, but you're reading the words of Jesus. You go to Jesus to find out who God is. You go to Jesus in the Word, and you read these words as if it is the Word of Christ. Old Testament, New Testament. The apostles were led by the Holy Spirit into the words of Jesus. Jesus said to the apostles in John chapter chapters 14 through 16, He said, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He will lead you into my words and will reveal to you what I want to say. This book is how you hear from Jesus. And when you come to it, you ask Jesus to place these words, his words, into your heart and into your mind. That it wouldn't be just an intellectual game or a theological game. You know, sometimes reading the Bible can become just another hobby or preaching can become a hobby for preachers. Did you know that? You can have all this knowledge. Look at all these stickies I have. You see all those stickies? Those are all the places I'm going to turn today in this Bible. 
which means I have a long sermon. But you know, it's fun. I got my stickies, and I got my Bible, and I underline my Bible, and I got, I got my knowledge. I got a lot of knowledge up here. I know a lot of things about this book. I went to seminary. You know, but what's important is not your knowledge about the Bible or about Christianity. It's your knowledge of Christianity, of Christ. Christ wants to give you a relationship with God, not some intellectual pursuit. This is not a lecture hall. This is a place where we come and we ask God to give us not knowledge, but a taste, a, an experience of the truth. And we come to Christ in his word and we say to him, speak your word, be my prophet, reveal God to my heart, enlighten my mind, give me wisdom in truth. You are God, revealing God, speaking the words of God. You are the word of God in flesh. You are the prophet. So first, Jesus is the prophet. He reveals. Secondly, Jesus is our priest. Prophet, priest. In the Old Testament, there were prophets and there were priests. Jesus fulfills these two offices infinitely, perfectly. Jesus is the ultimate priest. It was the job of a priest to make people acceptable to God. That was the job. If you want to understand priesthood and understand priest in the Bible, the job of the priest was to make people acceptable to God, and then secondly, to remind people of how holy God is. That was the job of the priest. So, on the one hand, a priest would come out before the people in the Old Testament and be all decked out. He'd be all like bling, bling, and he'd like have all these, you know, you know what I'm saying? I'm not going to call them pimped out clothes, but really nice clothes. Diamonds and studs and sashes and hats and all this fancy stuff. And that, those beautiful clothes reminded the people of their separation from God. Because when these clothes were created, they were created in the wilderness by Moses when they were coming out of slavery. And they, all they ever knew was slave clothes. So when they saw a priest who represented God in this beautiful, gorgeous splendor, People were reminded by the priest, there is a deeper chasm between us and God than we originally thought. God is more holy, more beautiful than we're willing to admit. We are frigid in our relationship to the holiness of God. We have no idea the vast separation between His holiness and our unholiness. But... The priest could administer atonement. The priest could make the people, an unholy people, acceptable to a holy God, at least in theory. And so the priest would administer sacrifices, and innocent animals would be slaughtered by the priest, and blood would be poured in a basin, and the basin would be brought into the Holy of Holies. And there on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, the blood would be put, and therefore the unholy people could be acceptable to the holy God. And there could be a reconciliation. Priest reconciles people to God. Priest makes people acceptable to God. All of this in the Old Testament was merely a symbol. It was a a pattern as if a a great builder who had a blueprint and said, this is what I'm going to do. See, the Old Testament's the blueprint. God saying, this is what I'm going to build. I'm going to build a priest who will make unacceptable people acceptable to me. 
And Jesus came into the world. He was born in a manger. And he was born for the purpose of being our high priest. Jesus came to make us acceptable. We read about this and there's so many passages it's hard to pick. But we read about this in a couple of exquisite passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 24 and following where it talks about Jesus being our high priest. Man, this is good news. This is gospel. We are going to the heart of the good news of God in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 24 and following. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would not have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here is what is amazing about this passage. Jesus is the high priest. A high priest would would prepare the sacrifice and make the sacrifice and put the sacrifice's blood and all of that. What Jesus does is he's both the priest and the sacrifice. It says he provides himself so that you and I and our sins could be atoned for. But the real beauty of Jesus being our priest is in a phrase. And if anybody asks you, what is Christianity? What, what is Christianity? I mean, tell me in three words... What is Christianity? You could say, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 24. It says that Jesus appeared in the presence of God. Here's the three words. On our behalf. In fact, I want you to repeat each of those words. Say, on my behalf. That's the role of Jesus as priest. Jesus in my place. That's the good news. You will not open a better gift under that tree this year. You will never, ever, ever, ever find anything that should be the foundation of your joy and praise than the idea that Jesus came to be a priest and the sacrifice, shedding his blood to make us acceptable to God. In our place, he died. And I can look at his blood, and I can say that is a perfect sacrifice. And it says there in Hebrews, he only had to die once, not many times. He only had to die once to make us acceptable to God. And when you believe into Jesus as your Savior and your priest, what happens is you are eternally safe. In God's presence. Because Jesus' blood is radically more than enough to cover your life and to make you right with God. He is a good high priest. Some people, they lose their assurance. They lose their security. Am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to go to hell? Am I going to, you know, what do I need to do to make myself acceptable by God? And the point of the New Testament is you can't make yourself acceptable to God. You can't. 
can't become holy. You can't stand in the holy of holies in your own righteousness. You have to depend on somebody else to make you acceptable. And Jesus and his blood is what makes you acceptable to God. We don't go to church to try to get accepted by God. We go to church because we are accepted by God. We don't, we don't go to worship and sing uh, about Jesus to try to make God impress with us. We sing to God and Jesus because in love, he became the priest who died in my place on my behalf. Gospel Christianity in two words, substitutionary atonement. You can't get any better than that, beloved. Your spiritual life is based not on you and what you perform, but on Jesus and what he did on the cross. As Matthew reveals, the angel told Joseph, you will name him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Everybody's trying to make their life justifiable in the sight of God, justifiable in the sight of everybody. We're all trying to justify ourselves with our, with our functional saviors and our, our idols and all of these things that we try to say, see, see, I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm acceptable. No, Jesus makes us acceptable. Lose the guilt. In fact, goes on to say that Jesus constantly, as a priest, constantly intercedes for us and stands to draw us near to God. He is even right now being a priest at the right hand of the Father, drawing us close to God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know what he's doing right now as priest? He is reminding you by the Holy Spirit, you are clean, clean even now. You are perpetually, eternally cleansed from all your sins, washed from all your sins in the presence of God. Even now, you are clean. You say, I don't feel very clean. I didn't wake up in time to take a shower. My jokes are really bad today, and I apologize about that. I'm going to give you your ties back and your money back. We don't always feel clean because sometimes in practice, we don't live up to our calling. Sometimes we fall short. Satan reminds us of our guilt. He's the great prosecuting attorney who says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You get defeated in your guilt. You get defeated in the fact that you've taken two steps back in your life or in, in your relationship or in your thought life or in your attitude or in the substances you take. You've taken two steps back and Satan's trying to remind you, you see, God doesn't like you anymore. Your conscience is not clean. You're, 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 you feel dirty. But you see what Jesus does is he creates an environment where he says to us and he speaks over us, you are forever not condemned. You are forever cleansed because my one death paid the whole price to make you pure in the sight of God. 
And do you know what that does to the psychology of a person, to the identity of a person who believes that? Do you know what that does? What kind of environment that creates? What kind of environment of hope and cleansing and and a clear conscience in the presence of God? It creates new desires. It creates desires where you you begin to want to walk with God. You want to talk with God because you're already accepted and you're not trying to obey to be accepted. You're accepted to obey. Jesus is our priest. That's his role. And he reminds us that his sacrifice and his work in making us acceptable to God is more than enough. But it comes down to faith and receiving that. And that's the question for you. Because it does not apply to anybody who has not received Christ into their life. If you've not believed in Jesus, then he is not your priest. He is not your prophet. Our job is to believe on Jesus Christ, believe into Jesus Christ. And and you and I, each as individuals, have to decide how we're going to respond to Jesus. Is he merely a good teacher or is he the priest of my life? Is he merely a nice rabbi that had this nice historical kind of thing and influence? Or is he the prophet who reveals God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ yourself? And is he calling you to himself? Because he's the only way you can become acceptable to God. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe that? Is he your priest? The priest reconciles. The prophet reveals. Finally, Jesus is the king. And the king rules. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. These are the great offices of the Old Testament And Jesus fulfills them perfectly. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 and look at this. This is Matthew's favorite emphasis, by the way, I think. Matthew loves, loves, loves the idea of Jesus being king. Matthew 1 and verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The emphasis there is on David's royalty. Then when you skip down to verse 17... Uh, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. When it says the Christ, that means anointed one. That means uh, it's a, 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 a royal title for somebody who's anointed to be king. The Messiah would be a king of kings. He would be the ultimate king. Matthew loves the idea of Jesus being the king. In fact, in chapter 2, jump down to chapter 2, you see the wise men. And when the wise men come to Jerusalem, they're looking for the king. Chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Jesus is the king. And what kings do is they rule on God's behalf. Jesus is the king who rules our life. Uh, Jesus rules over everything. Let me tell you the three areas where he rules. He rules over all creation. So he's not just the king of you and I if we believe. He's the king of everything. I mean, the Bible presents him as cosmically the king. He's the cosmic king. We try to limit Jesus. Well, he's not my king. Oh, he is. It's just you need to admit it. Well, he's not the king over everything. Oh, no, no. 
Jesus is the king over everything. Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Now those verses there in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He created all things. He sustains all things. Jesus rules over everything. There is nothing that Jesus can't look at that and say, that is mine. There's not a galaxy he can't point to and say, that is mine. He looks at everything and says, that's mine. These verses also tell us not only that he rules over creation, he rules over the church. He is the ruler over all believers. And of course, one day he will manifest to everybody his complete dominion of everything. Revelation chapter 19, I've got a slide for that. He'll come back and he'll show that he is the king of all kings. Revelation 19 Verses 11 and following. I love, I love this passage, man. This passage is so, oh, it's just so awesome. Let us have a moment of silence before we read it. Good. Revelation 19, verses 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which it to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. The Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, we get all those Hallmark pictures, you get those little cards with the little baby Jesus, and the little, little, and then we watch Talladega Nights. And I like to pray to little baby Jesus, little baby Jesus. That's my Jesus, little baby Jesus, little baby Jesus. And Jesus is so little, everybody's so cute. Jesus is, he's just so sweet and meek and mild. And he puts the little lamb on his shoulders and carries them about, you know, and he's just so sweet. And why are you being so loud, Pastor? Jesus wouldn't be loud. He's just so sweet. Jesus is so sweet. No wonder nobody believes in him. Why would you? Matthew says, Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus can walk on water. Jesus can stop storms. Jesus can die on a cross and defeat death. Jesus can ascend into heaven at the right hand of God. Jesus will come back and reveal he's not just the king of the Jews. He's not just the king of a few Gentiles. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you are invited by the gospel witness and by the church and through the proclamation of Jesus, you are invited to submit the knee now because there's coming a day when Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus indeed is Lord. And it will be too late on that day. Jesus says, come to me. 
Be a part of my kingdom. Let me be your king. Let me rule over you. Let me order your life. The book of Matthew has five sermons that Jesus preached. They're all kingly sermons. This is the way my subjects behave. This is the way my subjects follow me in this world. This is what I have to tell them as their king. And you know, beloved, here's the deal. I'll close with this because we're running late. Here's the deal. Our job as Christians is not to bring the kingdom of God to heaven. Our job is not to build the kingdom. Our job is not to fix all the politics. Our job is not to fix all the evils of society and stand there like we're better than everybody else and fix everything. You know what our job is? Our job is to represent the king. That's it. Represent the king in his kingdom. To represent a life that follows the king. To represent Jesus in our life. And to lovingly share Jesus with the world. But we know this world is not our home. This place is not my home. My home is a coming kingdom which will be revealed and it will come and it will be a new heavens and a new earth and there will be no tornadoes there. Hallelujah. I'm so sick of tornadoes in my life. Everywhere I go there's a tornado. There will be no death. There will be no sickness. See, Jesus says, it's not your job to make this your home. It's your job to represent me. You know, we're ambassadors for the king. Did you know that? And Imagine if you were an ambassador for America and you went to a place, a country that didn't believe in democracy, and, and you had to represent democracy and the freedom of America in a place that didn't have those things. And your job is to stand there with the flag and say, this is what I do. I represent another country. And as followers of Jesus, we represent another kingdom. Even in a world that doesn't have the same kingdom values. Doesn't say what Jesus says about money, power, and sex. Read the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, my people are different in terms of money. They don't get anxious about money. They don't worship money. My people are different with sex. They believe in sex between a man and a woman in marriage forever and ever. The two shall become one flesh. You can't serve both God and money. You you get married for life and power. Your job is not to declare power, but to lose power, to humble yourself, to carry your cross, to lose your life, to gain it. If somebody comes and takes your coat, give them your shirt. If somebody comes and asks you to go mile, go two miles. If somebody comes and slaps you on the cheek, give them the other cheek. You see, his kingdom is different. His way is different. And he rules over us and he leads us into this great life. Do you believe in the king of kings? Is he your king? He certainly is the king over everything. Sovereign. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, thank you for coming into this world to reveal God to us, to speak his words to us. Thank you, Jesus, for being our priest who dies on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for for being the king of kings, being a good king, but a sovereign king, a king over all nations, a king over all people. Jesus, may we grow in not only our affection for you, but may we grow in our perspective about you. May you become larger than life to us. May you be the one that we follow. If you don't know Jesus Christ and he's calling you to belong to him, and if you have the grace to be willing to accept him, just pray a prayer like this to him. Say, I know 
I know, Father, that I'm a sinner, and I deserve your rejection and punishment. Thank you for loving me enough to send your son Jesus into this world to die as payment for my sins. Jesus, I repent of my sin and turn to you alone for my forgiveness. I believe that you are the only one who could cleanse my heart and change me. I now receive Jesus as my Savior and the Lord of my life. Today I am making the choice to convert, to follow you and your truth. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving my sins and opening my mind to understand your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you next week.